Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by fellow podcaster Sean Fennessy, head of content for Ringer, and you may know his voice as the host of the Big Picture Podcast. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. So excited to speak with you and Talk about a movie I love that is less than 90 minutes, which is also something I love about movies. When you're in the business of watching a lot of films, it's those little it's those little details, like the fact it's under 90 minutes or, you know, like there, there's something else about the film which might make you, you know, attract you to a film or make you want to see something. That's definitely how I feel about cinema anyway. <laughs> I am, I am a, a runtime seeker. So before any screening, I always look up what the runtime of the film is. I always, I plan my days around seeing films and, um, if you ever catch one that's 84 minutes, a screening that's 84 minutes long of a film, that is magical to me. So just so happens that today's film is 84 minutes, which is exciting. It's always good to meet a like-minded uh, guest. And it's a pleasure to have you on on the podcast today. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the big picture. I uh, I think I started listening in the uh, during the pandemic and I was going through your back episodes as well as your, your, your current episodes. Uh, a lot of new release film podcasts during the pandemic had to stop or sort of pivot. And I think your format kind of let you guys carry on and um, there's always something interesting every week or, or twice a week as, as you do on your release schedule. Uh, it's nice of you to say. Um, I oddly think in a in a perverse way, the pandemic was very helpful to the show. I think it helped clarify what the show was supposed to be all along because it is a contemporary film podcast. The idea is to cover the landscape, new releases and try to put everything in context and conversation and also occasionally reach back to the past and celebrate something as long as there's a kind of modern relevance. But the pandemic, after about a two to three weeks of panicky, will movies ever be the same again episodes, I think we landed on a kind of slightly gamified, slightly listified format that also really amplified uh, the friendships and the relationships on the show. And, you know, the one between me and my co-host Amanda Dobbins and Chris Ryan is a significant part of the show. And also just the wider world of people in the industry, outside the industry, members of The Ringer, which is the, the company where I work um, and our podcast network. And um, I mean, it's a it's an honestly a joy to make the show at this point in my life. Like it's really one of the most fun things I've ever had the chance to do. It, sometimes it can be deeply idiosyncratic and sometimes it can be like deeply accessible, perhaps too accessible, perhaps too normy. Um, but I think we're, what we're striving for is like a, a kind of balance in inside baseball and, and outside baseball, for lack of a better term. Yeah, the, the conversation is informed, but it's never exclusive. Yeah, that's that, that's nice. I mean, you you hit it. That's what we're going for, for sure. And it's not challenging because that's the relationship that we have to movies. You know, I, don't, I, I am not interested in mocking films. I have worked on films. I know how hard it is to make a movie. I am a passionate, passionate consumer, observer, chronicler. Um, I read loads of film books in addition to watching you know, north of 500 films a year. Um, it is truly my passion. Um, and I love filmmakers. I talk to filmmakers on the show regularly. I, I'm fascinated by them, by their process, by what motivates them to create, um, by their prickliness, you know, by their controlling nature. I, I, I identify with some of their instincts. Um, 
So yeah, I, I, we are trying to do something that I don't want to say necessarily bolsters the industry, but certainly bolsters the the films and the filmmakers that we care about. Um, and it's, I mean, it's it's fun. Like you, it, for the same reason that you're doing this, you know, it's just it's fun to hang out with somebody that you think is smart and talk about something that you care about. So I'm lucky. I'm a, I'm very lucky to be able to do it. So you're sort of covering contemporary releases. There are so many films out uh, on streaming and in cinemas and, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, you can only focus on so many. Um, how do you sort of pick what's going to come, come up on the show? It's a good question. It's evolved over time, certainly. I think in the earliest stages, it was purely driven by my taste and what, the, what I was interested in. And candidly, that's a smaller show. It's a show with a smaller audience. It's a show with a smaller reach. And I, we do want to reach people and we do want to kind of capture a conversation around what is happening in the space while also advocating for celebrating smaller films or underrepresented filmmakers. So it's usually a blend of looking at figures that we know matter in the space. For example, you know, as we're talking today, we released an episode about Julia Roberts and the movie Ticket to Paradise. Ticket to Paradise, probably not going to crack my top 50 films of 2022. Perfectly fine movie with two big, bold movie stars. But... The concept of movie stardom is a huge part of our show and what it means to be a movie star. And so that was a pretty easy one to kind of program around because we had never had the chance to make a Julia Roberts episode. And so Julia Roberts hasn't been the star of a feature film in four years. So, you know, in that case, it is a bit of kind of editorial strategy. You know, my background is in magazines and packaging, and that's something both myself and Amanda, my co-host, have a lot of experience doing. So... I think we look at it as what will people be excited about and then what will we, we be excited about and try to find something in the middle of those two things. Um, the real challenge is when something is very big that I really hate. Um, because what I don't like doing is spending an hour on something I hate. I somewhat notoriously returned from a parental leave to find that Free Guy was the number one movie in the country in 2021. And uh, I just really despised that movie. Uh, and... So I, I, I ranted about it. And in, in a way, I, I kind of regretted ranting about it because I don't want to put too much energy into distaste. Um, what I want to do is celebrate. Absolutely. Punching down sometimes sort of feels a bit too easy and it's also a little bit boring. On the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, we always ask a guest to pick a film they love, you know, and it's sort of sharing your passion for something. And I think what you guys do is, you know, share your passion for cinema. Your relationship with Amanda in the show is, is, is incredible. Did you know each other before the podcast? Like, is that a personal relationship you're bringing on mic or have you developed it over the years, you know, we uh, did. live in front of the audience? No, we did. We did. We met about 10 years ago and... Um, she started dating one of my best friends. And that's essentially how we met. Um, and I, I, I was present at the moment that they met for the first time. And I, when I watched them meet, I said, oh, okay, I probably should get to know this person because I feel like she's going to be in his life for a long time. And we were, we were friends, I would say, for those first few years, but not, not what we are now. Now we are, like, uh, we are partners in this thing that we are doing together. And we know each other very, very well. Um, and... We also are new parents, and so we're going through parenthood together, and we live five minutes from one another, and you know, we, like our lives are very intertwined at this point, and so there is a kind of shorthand and a kind of speed talking that comes with these kind of podcast partnerships. Um, but you know, she's like, she is a real counterpoint to me. You know, she could care less about some of my more uh, film bro taste and is disinterested. I think in a lot of the genre mania that drives a lot of my fascination with films. She has a very different taste and point of view. Um, and I think like our our disagreements are kind of fundamental to the show. Um, and I think that the sort of like 
respectful but slightly insane counterpoint energy is really something that we have probably leaned into more than it is real, but it's still pretty real. Like when we are off mic, we definitely disagree on things pretty pretty adamantly. So what you're hearing is very real. Like we are very close and also, you know, are not afraid to call each other out loudly and somewhat <laughs> angrily. You watch so many films on on the show and uh, and i know you're a big movie fan you know as we're recording you've got an excellent uh, pile of blu-rays behind you um a great collection there I've, as a physical media champion i uh i uh, i i whoa there you go yeah, there yeah. you go I've got, I've got, i mean that's not even that's not even the half of it let me tell you i'm just showing off my my set here no i i always always good to see we moved house recently and uh, all of my blu-rays are in boxes in in the loft in the garage and uh, i need to rescue those guys they, <laughs> i'm worried they, about them they are prized possessions for me very prized possessions i don't even know why i care about them so much at this point but i do care about them um and you know what like this uh this conversation that we're gonna have today is an example of uh, being able to just walk over to my shelves and pull something off the shelf and have a real excuse to revisit a film that I really care about that I own. You know, and I don't have to go searching for where it may or may not be on a streaming service in my country or in your country. Um, there is uh, a universality of singular choice here. You know, like I know that I have this movie because I have all of Noah Baumbach's movies and and uh, that's that's comforting for me. When I reached out to to ask you to come on the show and, and, and pick a film, how did you approach the homework? You know, did you know exactly what you were going to go for on your in your DVD library, or, or did you pull a few discs uh, off the shelf and uh, just check the runtime uh, before coming back with a with a film? Nothing sprung to mind immediately. I did that thing that I'm sure many guests on your show do, which is sort of like just Google movies that are shorter than 90 minutes. Um, but I think as I was trying to make a decision around it. What I wanted to do is because I talk about so many films on the show, I wanted to talk about a film that I had a very strong relationship to that I did not get a chance to have not ever talked about on a podcast that would not appear on the big picture for any normal reason, nor on the rewatchables, which is another show that I co-host somewhat frequently, but is often covering kind of much more historic and or popular movies um, from the recent and distant past. And I wanted to talk about some filmmakers that I have a very deep and abiding affection for and also something that was slightly underappreciated, um, perhaps more than slightly underappreciated, and also something that I could speak about from a very personal perspective, like my connection to it and to the sort of mission of the people who are making the movie. And so the one that I landed on, I feel like really circles the square on a lot of those interests. Um, and I'm I'm excited to talk about it, and I was excited to revisit it honestly because it's a very unique piece of uh, modern movie storytelling that is also very very indebted to the past. That's a, that's an excellent summary, and and I love to hear that journey. Uh, so, Sean, for the listeners, uh, what did you choose today? I chose 2015's Mistress America, which is uh, co-written and directed by Noah Baumbach, co-written with his partner, creative partner, and and life partner Greta Gerwig. It stars Lola Kirk and Greta, and it's it's a Damn wonderful movie. Tracy Lolikirk is a lonely college freshman in New York, having neither the exciting university experience nor the glamorous metropolitan lifestyle that she envisioned. But when she is taken in by her soon-to-be stepsister, Brooke, 
Greta Gerwig, a proud resident of Times Square, an adventurous gallabout town, she is rescued from her disappointment and seduced by Brooke's alluringly mad schemes. This modern screwball comedy is about dream chasing and score settling, makeshift families and cat stealing. Mistress America, 84 minutes long. Wonderful. So yeah, 2015. Um, I mean, so great to have another Noah Baumbach film on our show. God, I think about one of our earliest films was Francis Ha, like maybe episode 10 or 11. Uh, and we're on, we're coming into episode 100 now. Uh, so really nice, you know, every 100, if we can get a Baumbach film on this show, I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I it, And it's so, such an interesting, this is sort of a, spiritual sequel i would say to francis ha there was a film that came between this um called while we're young which is a slightly a movie i like but it's a slightly more broad look at the kind of generation gap between a certain kind of aging artistic hipster and a, a younger more modern contemporary brooklyn hipster this movie is much more uh deeply focused on one relationship between a slightly older woman and a young girl going to college and Francis Ha is obviously a kind of rebirth for Bombach because of, you know, his connection with Greta and not just like as a star of Greenberg, but as someone who was writing with him. And Greta notably did not write on While We're Young, but she did write on this movie. And you can really feel her voice in this movie very, very much so. And one of the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a massive fan of Greta's like so many other people. I think she's really like one of the significant movie voices of the last 15 years. And you know, Noah's sense of humor and his very um, gentle style of filmmaking that is like acidic but easygoing is really, really my my tempo. And so kind of colliding the two of them, the kind of anxiety and excitement that courses through a lot of Greta's writing with Noah's kind of bitter sense of humor but kind of laconic filmmaking style is just, it's just candy to me. And... Um, this one in particular, I think, is focused on an experience that a lot of people have, which is, okay, my life is starting and I don't know who I am or what I'm doing. And that's obviously Francis Ha is a big part of that, is someone who's like slightly deeper into their young life and is at a crisis point. And this one kind of sets the clock back even further, where at 19, a young girl goes to college and already is completely spun out with a, a kind of curiosity and lack of direction and finds this North Star in a potential stepsister to be. Um, in Greta Gerwig's character, it's pretty transportive. Um, I also, you know, I lived in New York for a long time. I'm I'm from New York uh, originally, and it's a very very familiar experience of New York, even though it is set a few years after I left. So I just I, this is this was my favorite movie of 2015, which is is somewhat bold, I would say, because 2015 is one of the better film years we've had in recent times. You know, it's the year of Mad Max: Fury Road and carol and inside out and creed and sicario and the hateful eight it's a really 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 good movie year but this was the one that touched me the most so what a joy to get to talk about it with you what, what did you think of it i i missed this film on release and i'm a big Baumbach guy but i think especially in the uk the release dates between 
this and while we're young we're so close together i think while we're young is technically a 2014 film i think we may have got it in early 2015 and and this was also like first quarter i think of 2015 so we got these two close together that one had a slightly starrier cast so there was a bigger push uh, for that one and this one kind of got overshadowed and then it was a few years i was like oh i still haven't seen mistress america and, and maybe maybe there was another Baumbach release out uh, to make me you know sort of try and fill in the gaps and Honestly, in like, maybe it was late February or early March 2020, a rep cinema in London called The Prince Charles had a 35 mil screening of Mistress America. So I went solo, sat in the very front row of the movie theater, and I watched it and I just drank it in. I loved it. And it was one of the last films I saw at the cinema before the pandemic. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I um, I can't recall how I saw this movie. I must have seen it in theaters. At this point, I was... I was haunting a lot of screenings, so it's possible. I think it was a Sundance 2015 film. I was not at Sundance that year, so I could not have seen it there. But um, I I saw it more than once in movie theaters because I liked it so much. And in part because I, I think because of the length, too, that it was when it was over, I was like, oh, it's over. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, how do we how do we start this ride again? The other thing that's fun about a movie that is this short, and I'm sure this has been observed many times on your show, is just so easy to return to something like this too. You know, it feels almost like a trifle, no matter how emotionally impactful it is. It's like, yeah, let's just run that back. It's very easy to revisit. It's a really fun rewatch. You know, like sometimes an under 90 minute film might feel like a lifetime if it's not very good or if it's quite a serious subject matter. There's a lightness of touch to this and 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 it's so true. It's so relatable, I think, to, to so many people. Um, it, it's sort of... It's one of those films where if you catch it on TV, you just have to stay and watch the whole thing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, uh, last night I was I was rewatching it, a joy, the best homework. And my wife was like, I'm going to go to bed. And then 40 minutes in, she was still there watching the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice I didn't think she was paying attention, but she was laughing along and, and like she was asking, you know, it's like, okay, okay, like this, that's the sign of a good film. You did not want to see this movie. You're still here. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. I love to hear that. I mean, not surprising too. It's I think it is, um, even though it is, very um firmly set in a, in a in a milieu that is very specific it's a very relatable kind of story type you know i think even if you've never been to times square or been to brooklyn or been to a liberal arts college in new york city a lot of people a lot of young people around the world have had this kind of experience this kind of disassociation and slight sense of confusion and then that just absolutely intoxicating feeling when you meet someone who's a little older than you that feels like they have all the answers, you know, especially when you don't have an older sibling. I didn't have an older sibling. And so I was constantly looking for what now probably is best described as mentorship, you know, someone who could show me what are the cool things, what are the good things, what is the right way to be in the world. And, you know, Tracy, Lola Kirk's character is constantly talking about feeling like, she wasn't given all the information ahead of the test of life, you know, and she's constantly kind of catching up with, you know, whether it just be um, a kind of social grace or a, an, a, a knowledge or a taste that is just absent or like a personal style. That's a, something that comes up very often in this movie that I just really related to and I, I really find so charming um, and so, so specific. You know, the writing is just feels so ripped from the headlines of someone's life that I, I find that it it takes me back to a very discreet period of my life. Maybe it's like not even ten minutes, but the first five or six minutes of the film, Lola Kirk's Tracy just not finding her place in college. Like that sums up so many people's, you know, three or four years of college. I it, it's so well done and it's it's just a like a montage of her not fitting in, but like not in a particularly mean way. Like she's she's 
she doesn't have any direction and she's she's just kind of lost and and they they pick really great moments like she's talking to a teacher or a guidance counselor um and she's like have you tried not procrastinating you know yeah. it's like, <laughs> like it, it's very like direct stuff and then sort of feeling like you know she should be with all the the cool book kids and she should be in the writing group and 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 you know not sort of getting there but i, I think that's such a great way to set the film up um and then you know the first sort of one of the first meaningful conversations uh is with one of her classmates and uh I mean, I could just keep quoting lines from this film because it really makes me laugh. But one of my favorite lines is towards the beginning is uh, this guy saying, uh, it takes a lot of moxie to fall asleep in a class of 12. <laughs> um, and that's great. You know, she's in this tiny sort of literary class. And, uh, and, and yeah, it just there's a few lines like that that make me howl. Yeah, I think um, as time goes on too. Well, let me, let me say this. One, I I was definitely a freshman in college who had aspirations to be part of a slightly more sophisticated kind of social class and creative class at my college and didn't quite know how to penetrate that. And, I, you know, I went to college in upstate New York in uh, a town called Ithaca. And it's a very artistic community and it's a very sort of stridently liberal left-leaning community. And so there was really a lot of dynamic and exciting, slightly older people who were politically active, who were constantly going to the art house cinema there was a really vibrant radio station in my college all the all the trappings really of like a small liberal arts college especially on the east coast of the united states and i had a hard time figuring out how to insinuate myself in a lot of those communities um in that first semester i think a lot of people have that experience and so i spent the first few weeks of my college experience going to a neighboring school cornell to visit a friend and i was there all the time and I was almost skirting the social life of my college to go spend time at another school because that was a place of safety because I felt like I couldn't crack the code on a couple of things. And one of the reasons why I relate to the movie so deeply is because that's what Tracy's doing in a way, you know, by by putting a lot of her time into, into Greta Gerwig's character and essentially following her around and kind of trying to emulate her social life and emulate her life in general she is also not she's abandoning the thing that she wants to do at her own college when she finds that it's difficult to penetrate so you know it's a very common experience and i think that there is a kind of like middle class aspiration that courses through a lot of bombeck's work and greta gerwig's work too if you've seen ladybird you know that i'm sure one thing that they connected on is that they were both like effectively suburban kids although Bombach did grow up in Brooklyn he grew up in the most suburban part of Brooklyn you can and just wanting to get your nose above the water of middle classdom is really really a, a major theme of their work um let me tell you I can relate you know as the as the son of a police officer and a clerk typist who grew up on Long Island like that, that was that was my experience too I was like how can I just get a little bit my head a little bit above where I'm at right now um and so, like, I mean, that's the engine of the movie. And then the movie kind of becomes something very different, I think, once you realize that they're dynamic and once um, Lola Kirk's character and Greta Gerwig's character connect, it becomes much more of like a comedy of manners and it becomes much more of like a, almost like a screwball Preston Sturgis style adventure movie, which is one of the other reasons I love the movie is Preston Sturgis is certainly among my favorite filmmakers. He's my favorite filmmaker of his era. Um, and watching... Bombeck and Gerwig try to write Sturge's dialogue is a trip. I don't know if they totally get there, 
but they get close. Um, this sort of overlapping dialogue, the speed talking, the interplay and intercutting, um, I think is just delightful. The script is a real is a real marvel, and it's uh, you know not just for the gags, but of, of which there are many. But you know, really well observed lines, great pacing, and you know, and, and say telling a complete story with with some heart in this in this concise runtime. Uh, it's uh, it is it is such a dream, but it is yeah. It's uh, it's I think that Preston Sturgis that that screwballness. You know, it turns into a fast towards the end, which is great. You know, they're really going down the classical cinema and you know sort of stage formats uh, with this. Yeah, yeah, which I I think is a good choice, and I think is one thing that I really enjoy about all of Bombac's films is, in a way, they're all kind of the same, and in a way, they're all kind of different. You know, they're all, each one has a particularly genre inflected tone that even though they're largely set in cities starring sort of like quasi affluent, but somewhat dingy, smart people, um, often around families, each one is a, a slightly different kind of movie, you know, like, uh, the squid and the whale is certainly a more embittered and darker, almost Bergman-esque kind of portrait of like a family coming apart. Whereas, you know, Greenberg is like a Paul Mazursky movie about like a cranky guy. And it has that like slightly different comic tone. This movie, it genuinely feels like the good end result of Mumblecore to me. You know, and Greta mm-hmm. Gerwig obviously was a kind of a participant in that somewhat awkwardly named subgenre of independent filmmaking in New York um, in the 2000s. And it has that kind of like slapdash essence, but it's also m- more polished and, you know, obviously made by someone who's made a lot of movies. And I love trying to locate the kind of influence and what is sort of getting in the seams of the Bombac style every time he makes one. Bombac is just so flexible and fungible and sort of really underrated, in my opinion, in terms of the way that he can kind of shift filmmaking styles within these very concentrated worlds. So, um, yeah, this one is, it feels like the easiest to make, but that might have also made it one of the more challenging projects in a way creatively. Yeah, I think that lightness of, of touch for the viewers must be the result of, you know, so many, you know, like timing choices, editing choices, you know, screenplays thrown up and, and, and thrown in the bin. And, and, you know, it feels like this is the cream of, of the crop as well. And, and maybe that's what leads to the short runtime. You know, like they, they just kept everything that you really need to tell the story. There is no flab on this film. I wouldn't cut one scene. It, you know? it does feel like a like they killed a lot of their darlings, you know, like they did not let a lot any of the side roads of the storytelling get in the way and there are a lot of characters and there you know the kind of ensemble interplay is fundamental to the story but we don't spend too much time with say tony and nicolette we spend a little bit of time with them these two sort of supporting figures in the story but they're not by any means taking over the story they are there to support the primary interplay and conflict between brooke and tracy and so yeah I, i agree with you there's no fat which is fun my ex-friend and nemesis, Mamie Claire, stole my ideas and my fiance. Shit. She took this t-shirt idea that I had, started a company, sold it to J. Cruz, so there's that. She's one of those people that doesn't have any good ideas for her own life, so she just steals all of mine. And then she literally stole my cats. What were the t-shirts? Just really hard-looking flowers. Oh my god, I bought one of those t-shirts. Yeah, flowers with like skulls and shit, daggers. That's a great one. 
My fiance, Dylan, was super sexy and so rich, but I wasn't gonna marry him. Wait, you broke up with Dylan? I thought she stole him. And I never looked back. We should talk about the cast because it is incredible, but I also think just in terms of how they write the supporting characters around uh, Brooke and Tracy, like they're all they're all sort of quite broad, but in the best possible way, like you would need for like a stage farce. You know, like Nicolette is an amazing, like she's funny. She exactly, she serves her purpose, but she only has one purpose in the story and that's all she needs to do in this. And that's totally fine. That would be a criticism maybe in other, other works, but for this type of story, that's the sort of character you need to write. It's absurd that she's even in half of this movie, but I love it. Yeah, I also... I, I I'm almost I'm certain this is right either right before or right around the time of Hamilton and Nicolette is played by Jasmine Cephas Jones, who I think originated the roles of um, Peggy and and Maria in in Hamilton, and is a great actor, is a great young actor. You know, I think was in her probably her early twenties when she got this part. Bombach has always had an eye for young acting talent. I mean, Lola Kirk is obviously another significant example of this, but. He is so good at putting people you've never seen before that you can only kind of sort of recognize into these supporting roles. Um, and so like Discovery, I think, is a small part of this movie, too. Absolutely. And I think the the characters in this are it's got it's like quite a naturalistic style in terms of the cinematography. There's a lot of needing to walk down streets and go into, you know, like dingy bars and stuff. And the, the way, you know, you can, Greta Gerwig can, can, can do it, she can get away with it, that's part of her persona, but, but everybody feels at home in this film, uh, and it's so, it's, it's so lovingly captured. Like, I could watch just Baumbach shooting on location around New York f- for the rest of my life. I'd be very happy with that. I think one thing that he does very well, that obviously folks who came before him, like Woody Allen, like Elaine May, like people who made films in New York City in the 1970s, um, but that I think is resonates with me is that his movies feel like the experience of bounding through New York City. Francis Ha does this probably even better than this film. But the idea of just kind of racing from place to place along the sidewalk is is literalized in Francis Ha, and in this movie too. You know that this the famous I don't know about famous, but the the sort of signature moment in this movie is is Tracy meeting Brooke as Brooke bounds down the stairs in in Times Square. Which, you know, Greta Gerwig is, explodes into this speech about the majesty of New York City and the majesty of Times Square, which, let me tell you, is not a majestic place. is one of the most awful places, certainly in the East Coast of the United States, if not the world. And um, it, it, there is a kind of exuberance to the, the boundless energy you have when you're having a blast in New York. You know, I, I, I've lived in Los Angeles for the last 10 years. I love it here. But it is a sedentary culture. It is a place where if you want to go somewhere, you got to get in your car. I don't go for long walks unless I'm quote unquote hiking or like actively pursuing that. I was in New York two weeks ago. And when I was there, I think I walked 70 blocks in a day and a half because that's just what you do. And if you want to dip into a dive bar and grab a beer or meet somebody 12 minutes away and catch a film or get a hot dog, it seems so achievable and conquerable and life is kind of all in front of you all the time. And that's something that's so fun about this movie, or at least the first half of this movie before it becomes this kind of Connecticut farce is it really captures the like, okay, we went to some, a show and then we're going to a bar and then there's an after party. And 
that exuberance of young life, it really feels like it, it nails down so beautifully. But yeah, that's when I fell in love with the film. I think, you know, just just Gerwig and Lola Cook bounding around New York, having a great time, making me wish I was there with them. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then there's also this kind of subtext that becomes the text near the end of the film, which is Tracy trying to render a Brooke character in her writing, which is this, you know, very sort of like Salinger-esque, you know, pulling from the day-to-day excursions in your life to make something creative and something that I think a lot of young aspiring writers do when they're taking creative writing classes in college where they kind of don't really have any ideas or their ideas are kind of half-baked and they have to find a real-life simulacrum to get their creativity out. And what we find is that Tracy is this kind of brilliant observational fiction writer and has this very deft touch and a real handle on the language. And it's maybe a little purple, but you're always a little purple when you in your prose when you start writing. But she is just an extraordinary observer. And she the film has this really interesting tension dynamic between the idea of idolizing Brooke and locating Brooke's flaws and 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 her weaknesses and putting them down on paper, but also loving them, which I think is a very unusual an unusual conception like you don't a lot of times audiences need declaration around whether or not we have to love or hate our characters and brooke is such an interesting character so complex you know that 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 scene where tracy and brooke are having a drink at a bar and a woman approaches brooke who she went to high school with and at first it seems like maybe there will be a kind of joyful reunion between these two people who haven't seen each other in a long time but then very quickly we learn that this woman who's approached brooke has a real contempt and rage and frustration with how she was treated in high school by Brooke and her friend. And it's a, it's a remarkable scene. It's like maybe the most memorable scene to me in the movie, in part because Greta Gerwig's performance is amazing. And she has a kind of steely, how dare you not mature in the same exact way and fashion that I mature? And how dare you not recognize the understood social structure of life where anything that happened to you 15 years ago is in the past and you need to move on from it otherwise you're weak and it's almost like a darwinian sequence the writing is so crisp and tracy observes wordlessly the entire exchange and it's like pure fodder for a fiction writer you know in that moment like that's a scene that if you saw it you would jot it down yourself and try to put it somewhere in the future if you were a creative person um and i love the idea of making Tracy the audience to Brooke's misdeeds that's just such a smart setup for the movie because it doesn't seem like that's where we're going at first and then very quickly that's what the movie becomes they they play it so well in, in that scene and I love that that is you know when they you see them next on the street talking about that encounter still you imagine they may have been talking about it all night in the bar uh, but then all of the tension is dispelled by Tracy vomiting uh, in the gutter and then they don't need to talk about it again you know it's sort of it's such a good way for screenwriters to move on to the next thing uh, but still leave leave some impact with you well I, the, the, there's a really funny moment too when she begins throwing up um, Brooke approaches her and says oh no did I feed you too much alcohol and it indicates it's almost she's almost like the owner of a horse or something you know what i mean like her relationship to tracy is so simultaneously like welcoming and diminishing at the same time you know that she is doing everything for her and to her as opposed to with her um it's just a it's just a brilliant dynamic i really don't like to leave the city you're gonna want to take the hutch to the merit i'll bet dylan is still in love with me Marrying Mimi Claire is like buying a cashmere sweater from Old Navy. Even if he's not, this is a great investment. And don't forget, 
She still owes you. Yeah, it's win-win. Because I'm sure he still loves me. I'm not driving you to Connecticut to break up a marriage. I should be in my room reading Nicomachean Ethics. Oh, calm down, rich boy. I'm not rich. Yes, you are. You have a car. No, I'm not. My dad is a mechanic. He and my uncle have a body shop. I had this car because it was something he could give me. Sorry. I think I offended your boyfriend. He's not her boyfriend, he's mine. Why are you here? Because Tracy made Tony drive you. But why did you come? I could talk about the beginning of the film all day, but I also loved, I loved the back half of this film. I love the Connecticut scene. I love the farce going, finally going. I also love that in the film, uh, so they go to Mamie Claire's house, who's a, an old friend or not friend <laughs> of uh, of Brooke, and there's some beef there, and 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 they want to sort of unpack it. Um, you know, we're all we're all on on Tracy's side. Yes, we're going to go to Mamie Claire's house, Brooke. Let's go. Let's get in the car. And then there's this mad, you know, um, cast of characters get chucked into a car due to you know who owns the car, driving abilities. Nicolette, the uh, disgruntled girlfriend of, uh, of of Tracy's, uh, one of Tracy's school friends, has to come along as well. Yeah, I think the movie has this remarkable contempt for people who move to Connecticut. You know, for people who, I, and I think like the the rendering of Dylan, played by Michael Chernus, who is sort of the ex boyfriend friend character of Brooke is absolutely savage you know the guy who is like kind of constantly referencing how he was once at the vanguard of a cool culture and is now a banker at goldman sachs and you know wearing a fleece vest and has <laughs> gobs of money and lives in the suburbs the sort of wooded suburbs of connecticut and how brooke needs something from him but wants nothing to do with the way that he lives his life and sort of like still is attracted to certain things about him, but also is kind of repulsed by him. And Mamie Claire, who, you know, is a, clearly a character who always wanted exactly what she has and but can't be happy inside of it. I mean, this is just like really astute social observation. I'm sure Noah has friends who cashed out their Brooklyn lifestyle and, and you know, left Williamsburg to go move to, you know, a suburb outside of Stamford. But it is so dead on. I mean, I have family in Connecticut. Um, I have I have friends who left New York to move to Connecticut. Bombach is a real city dweller. You know, he certainly seems like the kind of guy who's going to die living in New York. And I, I just I really like how rude the whole movie is to the idea of just selling yourself out to do this thing. Um, and also, just a great change of pace setting. You know, like a big sprawling kind of ugly modernist home in the woods is so diametrically opposed to the buzzing, busy New York milieu that we spend the first 40 minutes of the movie in. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I love the Connecticut sequence too. It changes the color palette of the film as well. It's a daytime scene in a very white, big, sprawling house. The house feels like it's as big as New York is at the beginning of the movie. In New York, they are constantly in small rooms, as you maybe maybe in New York. Small rooms, small bars, even on the street, the way it's shot, it feels small. You see them on the sidewalk. You don't see the whole road, uh, you know, and, and then it sort of opens up in this weird you know, interior space. Also... I think a kudos to the writing for going to Connecticut. So many screwball comedies, rom-coms from the 30s and 40s end up in Connecticut in a big house for the third act payoff. So that's just like a fun, I don't know like if it's intentional or not, but it is, it's part of the genre uh, from days gone by. Yeah, and I think it, it does play into that almost like noises off style of filmmaking too, or sort of it basically is a play the final 40 minutes of the film. You know, it is not, we're in one place the entire time. 
it is big rooms, but it's sort of, it feels like the open space of a stage. And it is a very, this is a very uh, well-managed independent film. You know what I mean? It is like, it is not too ambitious, but it is deeply satisfying for what it is trying to be. And I think that claustrophobia inside a big open room is a fascinating idea. It's, oh, they're kind of trapped in this prison, desperate for money and trying, do it literally dancing, you know, literally uh, doing a two-step to get someone to give them something so they can escape the hell that is Connecticut, which is such a, another clever conceit for the conclusion of this movie. Obviously, that's not the way that it turns out by the end, but um, you're right. It's a perfect contrast of the open sidewalks and the, the soaring um, openness of New York City, which is often compacted once you get inside one of those bars or restaurants versus the truly boundless terrain of Connecticut that is dotted with all of these prisons, you know, these glamorous prisons that people move themselves into. And what makes it even better for us, the audience, is, you know, Brooke doesn't really want to go and see this old friend that she's had a falling out with, but she's doing a social event. There's a book group at her house at the same time. So it's the worst possible time to come and ask someone you don't really like anymore for money. Uh, but also also you're sort of having to, you know, perform for these strangers who are there for a very sophisticated wine and, and kind of Yeah, book I, I love it too. I mean, it gives us the opportunity to meet Karen, who might be the, one of the funniest characters in this movie, who's a pregnant woman who's participating in Mamie Claire's social life. It's just a clever, it's just a very clever setup, you know, and it's uncomplicated. And if you dropped in on someone um, in the afternoon on a weekend, invariably, this is what they would be doing. It's a very inert setup that becomes dynamic. And it gives us, you know, I think it's just a really good way to ramp the story up. And, you know, the the sort of the, the big reveal, I guess, of, uh, of sort of Tracy's uh, writing, you know, gets read out then to an audience. And that's just even worse. Uh, but I also like that after this scene, this sort of big breakup between Brooke and Tracy, you know, we sort of feel there's there's some real uh, consequences to that. Um, you know, during this point as well, they're about to become stepsisters. They find out that they're not going to become stepsisters anymore. So, you know, that that sort of intention that they need to hang out is kind of gone. It's like it's it's the worst possible you know outcome for Tracy, who's who's kind of heartbroken by the whole thing. And I was too. I wanted them to to get on and carry on being best friends. But Baumbach knows how to put us through the ringer. Yeah, it is a very. It's a little bit of a heartsick ending, you know. They they do spend time together at at the end before Brooke sets off on her next adventure. But um, it's a love story, right? It's a love story between these two people. Um, and thirty years ago, it might have been a May to December romance between an older man and a younger woman. And in this case, it's an older woman and a younger woman in a kind of platonic love affair. And they both give each other something, and then they both lose something. And in order to grow up, they need to part ways. Um, and so it's it's a it's a very bittersweet movie in a way, even though it feels like very antic and kind of absurd at times. It is also, you know, to your point, a really good movie about criticism. Um, there's that great scene early in the film when uh, Tracy and Tony trade stories and critique each other. And Tony has a very kind of blah, nondescript criticism of her story where he just says the middle part seems fake. And Tracy somewhat cleverly declines to criticize Tony's story, though clearly it is worse than Tracy's story because she is interested in this boy and is interested in this relationship and this friendship with this boy. And she knows that boys are ultimately more sensitive and defensive than girls and that they don't like to be criticized. 
and that she might scuttle the opportunity to spend more time with this guy if she says one negative thing about his story. It's just really keenly observed stuff. You know, it's just really, really smart writing. And it feels like the writing that is naturally born out of what happens when you have a female writing partner and a male writing partner working together. Um, they just, Kerwig and Bombeck, if you can almost feel them finis- finishing each other's sentences as they're writing. It's really, really great. It's, yes, it's, it's sort of this unique tone of voice, or at least, you know, in the current cinema landscape, there's nothing else really like this. And I think as Bombeck and Kerwig have become more and more successful in their careers, it's such a shame they aren't making smaller films like this together. Like they're on, they're on different trajectories now and it's so well-deserved but I, I would just, you know, fit a small one in. Do one for you after you do one for them. Yeah. That's what I'd like. I mean, it's, it's only getting bigger <laughs> from here, right? Like White Noise is coming out this year. And then Barbie. I mean, Barbie is is their first script together since this film. Um, and I, I don't know if we can get... Now, maybe the themes will be very similar in Barbie, honestly. And I would not be surprised if they are about the sort of like levels of maturation and femininity. You could certainly see that as being a, a, a core theme of Barbie if it's as good, as sort of as clever as people seem to think it will be. But... um. I, I feel the same. I feel a little bit like we it's it was this is sort of the end of an era um, for for Bombeck and Gerwig and the sort of scrappy smaller films before Bombeck goes on to his Netflix era, you know, and he is very much in his Netflix era in which the massive global streaming corporation is somehow kind of heroically and confoundingly funding his personal stories like Meyerowitz and and like Marriage Story and I think. Those are, in my opinion, those are also great films, but they are, they're not shaggy and, and small like this movie. And, you know, those movies have big, big movie stars. Um, and this movie is not like that. This movie is kind of purposefully contained and you get the sense that they made it very quickly. Um, and like you said, it came out in close succession to a movie with bigger movie stars just right before it. Um, and so it almost felt like a, like getting off a side project before going on a world tour. You know what I mean? And and I totally agree with that. And I'm, I'm glad that this is the side project, you know, something that we can we can cite and recommend. And, and it is, I think, underseen, like you were saying earlier. And, and hopefully off the back of this podcast, a few more people will go and check it out. I think it's a it's such a good recommendation. Like this is a hard film to not like. So I'm kind of confident recommending this to you listeners because uh, I think you'll you'll have a good time. And a lovely double bill with Francis Ha or with While We Were Young or maybe, hey, make it a triple. Yeah, I, I mean, I think honestly, Marriage Story is a good partner with this one too because Marriage Story is about getting to the end of the ambition that you have, getting the things that you want, becoming a successful theater director or an actor, having a family, retaining that New York City lifestyle, and then, and then what? And then asking yourself, like, what is my life really about? How do I really want to spend my time? You know, his movies really, I think, chart the course of an American life. You know, certainly an East Coast sophisticated, literate life, but a life. Um, and he's constantly kind of reassessing his place in the landscape, his partner's place in the landscape. I love his movies. I love that I got a chance to talk to you about it. Um, I hope people. I hope people will listen to this and and check it out. And it really does feel like the most underseen of all of his movies, um, and perhaps all of Greta Gerwig's movies too. So it's just a it's just a dynamite eighty four minutes.
So as part of our Under 90 Minute Film Festival, part of the commitment is not only to pick the film, but also to choose where we'd like to screen this film. So, Sean, if I could give you a print of this movie and uh, and kind of a blank check to, to find a venue and, and, and host a screening, if you've got a particular movie theater you'd like to uh, present Mistress America at? Well, it's got to be in New York, right? I guess Film Forum is probably the best place to show it. You know, probably a place that Greta and Noah have haunted many times over the years where they've seen a lot of great films. It's the right crowd, I think. A lot of people, a lot of NYU, Columbia, Barnard students go to Film Forum and get a film education at a young age. So that feels like the right the right place for it to me. Not, not nowhere in Connecticut, that's for sure. That sounds like a good fit to me. Have you got a, a favorite cinema snack, uh, you know, or, or something you'd like to see on the on the concession stand uh, at the screening? You know, you can't find them in most most uh, movie theaters, but Mike and Ike's are my ultimate candy. Um, if, if you got Mike and Ike's, I'm I'm golden. I'm not a popcorn guy. Never been a popcorn guy. So good to me. It's quieter, and and popcorn is a pain to clean that's up. That's exactly right. So, uh... <laughs> okay well let's do it let's put it we'll put on the screening at film forum in new york um you know people can can walk there as is the way in new york and, and listen to this amazing buzzy soundtrack to and from the, the cinema sounds great i'm ready well thank you so much for talking to us today sean it's been uh, it's been a blast and thank you for for finally you know well, for picking this film and for allowing us to talk about it it's uh yeah big bombback fan i love this film so much and uh, it's great to officially have it in our 90 minutes or less film fest sam thanks for having me i had a lot of fun i really appreciate it and keep up the good work thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice you can rate and review us on apple podcasts and spotify or if you've got a mo share an episode with your friends Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.